You know, our whole series is on David, but it's really about um, uh, emotional honesty, right? And uh, uh, to echo what um, <clears throat> Larry said a couple weeks ago uh, that Clara taught us is that if you don't want to be emotional, don't come to our church, right? <laughs> but there's something so freeing uh, about being able to be real and honest and open with each other, right? Um, so many times, uh, I believe, so many uh, parts of our culture and our even our faith, it's like this, we have to put these masks and we have to be all good and we have to be all, have it all together, right? And we don't, none of us do, I don't. And it's so freeing to know that we don't have to be that way, right? And so we've been in the series on David um, and, uh, and, and we, we're pairing uh, the life of David and what David has done and kind of his context of his story, right? Uh, we're pairing it with the Psalms that he wrote in that moment, right? And, uh, and, the, and the hope behind that is that, we, that, that David can model for us uh, what it looks like to be emotionally honest uh, before the Lord. And that's something that's oftentimes it's, it's, it's taboo. Like we, we're not allowed to really be open and be real and be genuine before the Lord. And um, I know that that's something that's been real for me. And, uh, and so we, wanna, we want us to be able to sit in a place where we can see what was going on in David's life, but then also to see the appropriateness of his response in allowing his emotions to uh, be available and be transparent and to be raw and real uh, with the God that David loved, and uh, and what we can mimic uh, in that, and but, and, uh, and 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 you know how honest can we really be with God, and how safe do we really feel uh, with God, and 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 so we're looking at David and how safe and how real and how honest he felt with God, right, and and the. Um, uh, the, now, but the other side of that coin is is the dangers of glorifying like David's life, right? And and oftentimes, um, we will take a lot of the characters in the Bible and we will moralize them, and we'll say, well, this person lived this way, and so we have to follow that person, right? And especially, I think with I've been, I've done children's ministries for a long time, and I think with kids ministries, it's very dangerous, uh, or maybe not dangerous, but it's very common to. Um, that that be the, just the norm, right? We're going to learn about Samson today, right? Because, and Samson was strong, so be strong like Samson, right? And, and David killed Goliath. And so, you know, go kill some giants, right? And so, you know, Daniel spent the, uh, you know, the night in the lion's den because he stood up for God. So go stand up for God and kill those lions, right? You know, like, and, uh, and the danger of that is we, we um, one, we glorify these people, but then also is we, we condense these deeply complex humans into these really flat characters. And uh, David's um, story is so much deeper and so much more complicated and complex than, than just this character that always did everything right and you just need to go follow and do whatever he did, right? And, uh, and so today we're going to look at kind of the, the dark side of, of David. And so um, and uh, the reality is that there is... Um, a danger when we glorify these characters and when we uh, flatten them uh, and remove from them their humanity because we have to realize something, that the whole Bible is this story of God revealing himself to his people and in that, he has chosen a people for himself to be the vehicle in which he is going to reveal himself. And, uh, and, at the, and uh, so that people is the people of Israel. 
And the people of Israel were intended to be the rescue team for the rest of the world, right? This vehicle from which the, God is going to show his glory and the world would see and know that God is real and, and, and turn to him and follow him, right? But then the, 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 the Israel becomes then uh, the rescue team, right, that God's going to use. But then Israel, like, falls and fails and falls into their own sin. And the rescue team needs to be rescued, right? And essentially, um, and the problem at the core of all of this the, the major problem of all of humanity, and what we're going to look at in this moment is, uh, in the story of David, is the problem of sin, and this, how sin corrupts, and how sin destroys. I want to read you a quote, uh, and this is by uh, Cornelius Plantinga Jr. In his, in his book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, A Brevery of Sin. And it says this, none of these troubles, and he kind of lists off a lot of the troubles that we face in our world, none of these troubles matter as much as sin. The reason is that sin distorts our character, a central feature of our very humanity. Sin corrupts powerful human capacities like thought, emotion, speech, and act so that they become the centers of attack on others or a, def uh, a defection or neglect. We may, we may not want these character flaws. In fact, we may not even know that we have them. But, it, it, but if our victims know that we have hurt them consciously, deliberately, even serenely, their attitude towards us is not merely uh, a refuel as it would normally be, as if they had been harmed, if we had harmed them by accident. Their attitude is not just sorrowful, as it normally is when nature catches people in its greatest, in its great machinery, right? Instead, our victims face us indignantly, for they know that we have violated them with something powerful and peculiarly, peculiarly personal. I can't say that word. We have willingly hurt them. We have done it on purpose. And so the challenge of sin is that this uh, sin is... Uh, this bent that we have in our humanity that is independence from God, this desire to move independent from God, and it is a disruption of shalom, the shalom that God has built. I want to read uh, James chapter 1, verse 13 and through uh, 15 to help give us a kind of an understanding of where all this comes from, right? Because the temptation is uh, of sin is that we uh, we it's an outward thing, right? That this is the outward thing. And that, and that this is sprung from somewhere else, right? You look at the beginning of the story, right? Adam and Eve, the beginning of the inception of sin, right? And what happens is uh, Adam then, when God calls him to task, he says, well, it was really uh, Eve's fault, right? He blames the woman. And the woman, Eve, is like, well, it was really the snake's fault. And there's this passing the buck of ownership of what has been done. And so James teaches us this, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. This is heavy. Like, that's, that's a pretty heavy thing, right? But what we, what, we, what we have to recognize is that at the core of where sin comes from, it, it doesn't come from outside. It comes from within. It comes from inside. 
as our, uh, as our desires, um, our own evil desires spring up and entice us. And then that evil desire, after it has conceived, right, it's not just something that just kind of happens, just kind of pops in. There is this, this processing, this, this, the idea there of conception, right, is this, uh, you know, you think of like a baby being like conceived, right? And um, as this evil desire has conceived, it brings forth sin, right? And then when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. So here's the thing that we have to understand, that sin is not just our uh, actions. It's not just the external things we do on the outside. But sin is a bigger problem. Sin is a condition that we all have. Let me illustrate it in this way. I have a friend who I love dearly who uh, is HIV positive. Uh, and as we know, HIV is a disease that affects uh, your immune system and your ability to fight off infection and disease and germs. And so here's the problem with his life, is that there is no cure for his HIV. Doctors don't have a way of curing that. All they can do is uh, keep it at bay and, uh, and uh, help maintain symptoms. But the problem is not the symptoms, the problem is the disease is the virus that is infecting his, his body. And so the, the issue with sin is that, yes, the sin is our, the external things that we do, the, the lying, the cheating, the hurting, the unkindness, the deceptions, uh, those things that we do. Um, you know, it's cheating on a test. It's cheating on your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your husband. Yes, those are those things. It's, it's being untruthful and lying. Those are things, right? It's abusing of another person or, uh, or treating another person unjustly. Those are external. Those are the symptoms of sin. But the condition of sin is something deeper inside. And we can, uh, to a high degree, we can f work on those outside external symptoms, but until the condition is dealt with, we have this bent towards evil. And this is how we see, if we look at our world around us, this is why 25,000 children die every single day of hunger-related and poverty-related issues. This is why uh, 42 human beings on this earth own more wealth than the rest of the entire population. This is why there is this, um, uh, that, that things like, like last night there was the Global Citizens uh, Festival, right? And their, their goal is to end poverty uh, by uh, 2030, right? But if the United States would spend one year of their military budget, they would resolve world hunger forever. Like, understand, like, this is why our world is so discombobulated, and it's because at the core of us there is sin, right? Um, and this is the major problem of sin, is that sin will kill you. The reason that, that sin is such a problem for us is not that it just destroys shalom. It's not that it just it, uh, it affects our relationship. It's that sin leads to death, right? What does it say here? That after the desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. 
Romans uh, 3.23, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. What sin has earned for us is death. It's death of a relationship. It's death of our own emotion and body and soul and spirit. And ultimately, it's death of our spirit in that we are eternally separated from God after death. That is the condition of sin. That is the problem of sin. And that is the reason God had to step in to intervene. And what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at how that, uh, how all of this um, has affected one of our champions. And the reality of when we look at scripture is we're looking at people that are on the one hand, both godly and following God, but they, on the other hand, are still very much affected by this human condition. Uh, and I know that that's heavy. It's kind of a heavy intro, right? Um, but there's hope, so stay with me, right? But let's, I want us to look at David, and, and, and today we're going to look at David as not as uh, this hero that we just need to emulate, this... Um, this champion of moral character that we just, if you just go live out like David, then you'll be okay, right? But I want us to see the humanness of David and, uh, and then how he responds uh, will be a really a big part of uh, next week as Wendy leads us then into the corresponding psalms for this period of time in David's life. I'm going to leave him alone. I had a big fly on my mic. I was going to kill it, but then I decided to let it live because... Because of Jesus. All right. Um, so what? What? So here's I, I uh, just to just to lighten the mood a little bit, right? Um, I love telling Old Testament stories, so I'm so excited about sharing this story, right? Because David is one of my favorite stories. And if you look at David, he like encompasses a huge part of the Old Testament because the story is so important. And so uh, last week, uh, or, or two weeks ago, Larry kind of shared with us uh, kind of how this all began. And David was on the run from Saul. For years, uh, Saul, the king of Israel, was wanting to kill David and was hunting him down uh, out of jealousy uh, for David, right? And so uh, the end of 1 Samuel, we find the death of Saul. And Saul and his soldiers are fighting against the Philistines, which was the, the main en enemy uh, at the time uh, uh, of David and Saul. And uh, Saul is out in the battlefield, and there's a really, really trippy story in the end of uh, 1 Samuel, which Saul goes to this witch, and uh, the witch of Endor, which sounds like something out of the Lord of the Rings, right? And um, she, you know, brings up the spirit of, of Samuel, who had died, and Samuel, like, curses. Like, this is, like, in the Bible. This is, like, crazy stuff, right? And uh, because he had done this, because he had searched for this witch instead of going to... Uh, going to the Lord for wisdom, right? Um, the Lord is like, you're going to die in this battle. This is, you're done, right? And so Saul and his, um, I got to remember, I got to go run through this because there's a lot, right? So Saul and his whole, uh, his family and his whole household is killed in this battle. His son, Jonathan, whom David loved, uh, is killed. Saul actually takes his own life. He's wounded by an arrow uh, and then sitting by his chariot, he just, he falls on his own sword. Um, uh, and so, uh, 
then what ends up happening is there's a short civil war between Ebosheth, which is Saul's last remaining son, and, and the army of Israel, and, uh, and David, and the, his men, and Judah kind of rally around David. And so there's a short civil war, and there's two generals that you need to know about. The, the general for Israel and Ebosheth, his name is Abner, and the general for uh, David is named Joab. And Joab uh, and Abner are like, like the second in command of the whole army, of, of the opposing armies. And so uh, Abner uh, gets insulted by Ebosheth, and so then he's like, forget it, I'm out, I'm going to David, right? And he goes over to David's side and says, I'm bringing the, all of Israel with me, we're, gonna, we're moving over to David's side. And, uh, and so Abner is like, cool, I mean, uh, Joab is like, cool, great, except you killed my brother, let's go talk for a sec. And he pulls Abner aside, and under the truce, they walk over, and then uh, Joab, like, stabs Abner and kills him, right? And so David's upset about this. But uh, then the whole army has already kind of gone over to David, and so, you know, it's kind of too late, so they end up staying. Like, there's all kinds of, like, betrayal and stuff and crazy in there. Um, but so then David becomes king, and he's, he's anointed king in, in the city of Horeb, um, and uh, sorry, uh, Hebron, and Hebron is like the central place of Israel, the central city of Israel for seven more years, and then David conquers uh, the city of the Jebusites, which is Jerusalem, and now David, kind of like George Washington when they started the United States of America, remember, you remember that time? Uh, you know, like, well, we need a new capital, right? So they, they created Washington, D.C. as this kind of new central, like, capital for this new country. And so David does kind of a similar thing. He conquers this, this city, and this becomes the city of David. Jerusalem is called the city of David because this was, he conquered it, and he made this now the central point of, uh, of Israel. This is now the capital of Israel. This is the center of everything that's going on. My wife is, is uh, telling me to move on. Uh, so she's in the back. She's just kind of like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. So, sorry, I love you, babe. Um, so now what uh, important things that are happening, these are all the things that are happening at the beginning of First Samuel, right? David then brings in the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And if you don't know what the Ark of the Covenant is, it is this golden box that uh, Moses had built under the instruction of God. And this is what's really, really interesting about this. The Ark of the Covenant was the living and literal presence of God on earth. And everywhere the Ark of the Covenant was, there was the presence of God in physical form. And at night, it was a pillar of, of fire. And during the day, it was a pillar of smoke. And so the whole culture and religion and every aspect of Jewish life revolved around your proximity to the Ark of the Covenant. Right? And so there were certain tribes that were allowed to be closer than other tribes. And the, and the Levites, which were the tribe of priests, were the only ones who could actually be centered in the, uh, the tabernacle, which was this giant tent, which is where they housed this thing. Because it was mobile, because the people of Israel were moving around all over the place, right? And so because David had finally created a centralized a city for their for their nation he brought the ark of the covenant into the city literally signifying the presence of god is here amongst his people in our city in this place and this is like the biggest thing that they had ever seen right this i mean to to give you an example so you understand how incredibly like powerful this moment was uh, every six steps that the priests who were carrying the uh, ark of the covenant because 
like you had to carry the Ark of the Covenant in a certain way. If you didn't carry it in that certain way, people would die. Literally, they had it on a cart with a with a like some cows were pulling it, right? And they had this on this cart and it fell over and a guy went to hold it and he dropped dead because he touched it. Like this was like no joke. Every six steps, this is in the Bible, every six steps they would offer a sacrifice unto God. They would, they would kill a, a bull in, in, as an offering to the Lord. Every six steps that they brought this ark into the city. I mean, we're talking like hardcore. And in front of this whole procession, David is dancing. And he's in dancing in a kind of an indecent like outfit. He just kind of like wrapped a towel around his waist. And he's out there, just it's, it's a linen ephod. And he's just out there just dancing before the Lord in praise and worship that God, his God, their God, was coming into the city and he was going to make his dwelling in this city, the city of David, the height of David's power, the height of David's glory. And, and David, uh, up until uh, chapter 11, is just conquering and doing all these incredible things and he eradicates the Philistines and then they fight against the Ammonites and then they're, fa- they're, they're just fighting against all these and, and David is just uh, decimating anyone who comes, stands in front of him, right? He is this incredible uh, uh, leader of, of, this, of the army and he's doing all these things and he's the height of uh, all of this. God makes a promise to him after he brought the Ark of the uh, Covenant in. And the Lord says in 2 Samuel, uh, verse 7, it says, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and, the, and you rest with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will, become, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be his father, and he will be my son. So this is a credible prophecy that God gives to uh, to David through uh, through the prophet Nathan, right? Uh, and it's this really, really powerful uh, moment for David that his son, that he's creating a dynasty, that his children will be the kings uh, forever, right? And that that through his line, that they will be uh, there will be the kings of of Israel, right? So David is. Sitting high. This is the pinnacle of David's life, right? This is the moment. This is like everything is falling into place. God has given him incredible victories. He is at the top of where he needs to be. There's oftentimes in the moments of greatest peace or victory that we become uh, most uh, susceptible to our own desires and what's going on inside of us because we become careless. And so we find David now in chapter 11. And, uh, and here's where uh, our, kinda, our story picks up a little bit. And uh, in chapter 11, it starts out this. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. So at the beginning of our story, we find that all of a sudden, David's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. David's not where he's supposed to be. David's primary function as uh, the king of Israel is to be a deliverer, uh, to be the military leader of his country, to free uh, the people of Israel from all the warring uh, tribes that were uh, neighboring them. And we find that David is not where he's supposed to be. He's not doing what he was called to do. 
he stayed in Jerusalem and allowed his soldiers to go off with Joab. And this is where the story starts to get a little icky. One day David got up from his bed and he was, he was, uh, he was napping and, and he decides he was going to walk around the palace roof. And he's walking around in the cool, like kind of early evening time. Uh, and he's walking around and he's looking out over the whole city and he notices that there's this woman who is bathing. Now, um, uh, she's bathing on her rooftop. We don't know if that was like a little garden that they had or if there was like a little room or whatever. But he was ba- she was bathing and he notices her and he sees that she's beautiful. And so he calls over to a servant and he says, well, who is this woman? Desire is beginning to form in his heart. And he asks his servant, who is this woman? And the servant says, isn't this Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now David knows who she is. She's not this strange person. He knows who uh, she is. And Uriah is uh, one of David's mighty men. So think about it this way. David had been spending years fighting against the Philistines, and he, he had a group of men. that There were these 33, 33 men. Uh, three of them were like renowned warriors that had killed like thousands of peoples and giants all by themselves. There's a really cool story in the Bible of one of these guys that just takes a spear and like fights against like 10,000 soldiers, which I think it might be like a little exaggerated, or I'm sure there, there was like some other people with him. Uh, but there, there's like this... This episode where with a javelin, he, like, kills, like, all these dudes and, like, frees the, the people. Like, there's all these really, really fun, like, rated R stories. Uh, if, you like, uh, if you like war and battle, which I do. So, um, so uh, Uriah the Hittite was not a Jewish man. He was a Hittite who had converted over to, uh, to, to God and uh, who was one of David's mighty men. He was, like, one of David's, like, boys. This is one of his guys. This is one of the soldiers that has been in battle with him for years. And if you think of, like, you know, Band of Brothers and, like, all this, like, the camaraderie that happens between soldiers who have faced death together, right? This is one of those guys. And he knows him. And he knows that Uriah is off in battle. And look what he does. David sent messengers to get her. And she came to him, and he slept with her. And then he sends her home. He takes what was in his. He took this other man's wife, this man that was his friend, this man that was his loyal soldier. And here's where the problem, here's when the story starts to get even more complicated. She writes, she goes back home and she writes to him, I am pregnant. Se complicó la cosa. Now, now what, like, what do you do? And so oftentimes with all of us is when we're caught in the sin, what do we do? We have to then do something to cover it up, hide it, hide our mistake, hide what's going on, right? Or, you know, add something that will, you know, just essentially cover it up. And so what David does is he, he then sends a messenger to, to uh, Joab and says, hey, bring me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sends him the man. And David does this under the guise of like, hey, I want to hear what's going on in the battle. How's, how's the battle at Ra- uh, Rabbah? What's going on in the city? And Joab tells him all these things, right? And then David says, all right, well, great. That's great. That's great. Okay, great, great. Okay, hey, bro. Well, all that's good. Why don't you go home? And, and, and go clean yourself off, spend the night at your house, go see your wife, 
and, uh, you know, let me know how it goes. And, um, and he actually sends, uh, he sends Uriah home with this gift, which literally probably was like this giant platter of meat, right? So he's, he goes to the deli, gets a bunch of meat, and sends this guy home, right? But look what Uriah does. Uriah does not leave the palace, but goes to the palace gate, which is where the servants would sleep. And he spends the night in a mat in the king's palace. And when David finds out in the morning, he brings Uriah to the back. And he says, what did you, uh, why did you go home? Like, what's, what's the deal? And uh, Uriah says, the ark of the Lord is, is in a tent. My master, Joab, and the king's men are out sleeping in tents. And we are in battle. How could I go home and, 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 and eat and drink and sleep with my wife? I would not do such a thing. There was this code, and you can see this in um, earlier uh, in uh, 1 Samuel 21. Uh, David goes to, uh, to um, the priest in this place called Nob, and their only bread that they have is consecrated bread. And David's, and he's like, well, I'll give it to you. The priest says to David, I'll give you the bread for your men only if they've con- they're consecrated. And David says, our men have not touched women as par- as per usual. It was a part of their custom as, as warriors that to, in a, in a way, um, consecrate themselves to battle, they would refrain from sex with their wives and their women. And so Uriah is honoring this consecration and this, uh, this um, sense of duty to David, to his king, to his general, and to his men. Uriah becomes a foil, right? A foil is a literary person who is, who is put in a juxtaposition uh, next to uh, another, the main character as a way of revealing uh, their, 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 uh, something about that person. And so you have Uriah being essentially what David is supposed to be, out in battle, doing his job, honoring his God, honoring his country, and fighting for his people. And instead, David is doing all these things. So, so David's like, okay, all right, well, we're going to have to do this the hard way. So then he brings, well, he says to Uriah, well, come to my house. Tonight we'll celebrate, and tomorrow I'll send you home. And he brings David into the palace, and he gets him drunk. Because David believes, if I can get him drunk, then at least he'll, he'll go do, you know, he'll go sleep with his wife and, you know, whatever. He'll do it because it'll be the natural thing for him, right? He's drunk. He won't even know what he's doing. And Uriah, even get, after getting, and it literally says that David got him drunk. Uriah goes and again sleeps on a mat at the entrance of the palace with the rest of the servants. And so David calls him in the morning and sends him back to Joab. And he gives him a letter. Give this to Joab. And Uriah takes this letter, which is literally his death warrant, Because in that letter, David gives instructions to Joab. Put Uriah in the front lines where the battle is the fiercest. And then pull back from him so that he will be struck down and killed. Not only just like send him into the battle, but intentionally remove protection from him so that he'll be killed. Betray him. 
in the most horrible way. This is our champion. This is our hero. This is the man after God's own heart. The depths of his sin spewing out to cover up his evil desire and what he had done. And so Uriah returns to Joab and Joab sees the letter and Joab, the commander of the armies, obeys and sends Uriah into battle where the defenders of this city, Rabbah, had been the fiercest. And, and, and I can imagine Uriah, the Hittite, who is a man of honor being told, I want you to go and I want you to take this city in the hardest place. And he's like, yes, me and my men are going to go and we're going to do this. And then in the thick of the battle, they got too close to the city and the archers from the city shot them, Uriah and many of his men. Now it's not, it's not just Uriah, it's all these other soldiers that were with him. And he was struck down and killed. And Joab sends word to David of what had happened at the battle with, the ser- with another servant. And the servant was to tell him that in case David gets angry at him, for like, why did you get so close to the city? Why would you do this? To remind David and tell him, also, your servant Uriah has been killed. To remind David, I'm just doing what you told me to do. And so uh, Bathsheba, who is this beautiful woman, um, finds out her husband is dead, mourns him. And it was a period of about maybe seven days uh, of, of mourning. Um, and then David takes her as his wife, brings her into the palace, takes her as his wife. And she bears a son. And the last verse of chapter 11, it says this. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And this is one of the things that we need to understand about sin, right? Is oftentimes we think no one knows, no one sees, I'm going to get away with this and it'll be okay. And maybe years will pass and, I'll, and, and we'll begin to think, well, nobody knows this was in my past. It won't come back to haunt me. It won't come back to get me. But the reality is, Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. Sin brings death when it is conceived. And so God saw what David did and it displeased him. And God is moved to act. And so in verse in chapter 12, what we see is then... Uh, uh, Nathan, who's the prophet of God, the Lord sends Nathan to go speak to David. And David tells him this story. He, he goes into the presence of the king and he says, Oh, king, there's these two men that live in a village. And one of them is a rich man who has large amounts of sheep and cattle. And there's another man in the village who's a poor man who only has one ewe lamb that he bought. But he loves that lamb. And he treats it as his own child. And the lamb eats from his own plate and drinks from his own cup and sleeps in the man's bed in his arms. And he treats this lamb as if it was his own daughter. And a man came to visit this, uh, this rich man, had been traveling and came to visit this rich man. And the rich man wanted to celebrate him and treat him. And so he threw a, a feast. But instead of killing one of his, instead of serving one of his own sheep, one of the many, he went and took this man, this poor man's sheep his little lamb, and served it to the traveler. 
And David, indignant and anger at, the, at this story and the injustice of this man, he, he shouts out, this man should be killed. And then, and then remembering he's the king, establishes justice and says, this man has to pay back four times what was taken from, uh, from him. Or the rich man has to pay back four times what was taken, uh, what he took from this poor man. And then Nathan looks at him. And he says this, you are that man. And then it pronounces judgment from the Lord on David of what, what is going to happen. He says, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord? By doing what this evil in his eyes. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, Therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took Uriah uh, the Hittite, to be, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, to be your own. And he begins to then unravel the consequence of David's sin and what will happen here um, for David. And David, being confronted with what he had done, he cries out, and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replies, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. Man, this is heavy. Man, this is real heavy. Because the thing with sin is that someone has to pay for sin. Someone has to pay for the things that were done, for the things that I have done, for the things that I have done to my fellow humans, for the way I have broken shalom, for the way that we have broken shalom. Someone has to pay. And in this instance, it cost the life of their little baby. And not only that, but then there would be consequences to David's life. And from this moment on, David's life is entrenched in conflict. The next chapter is his firstborn son, Am 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 Amnon, who essentially rapes his sister, his half-sister Tamar. And then Absalom, to get revenge for his brother, plots and plans and then murders Amnon. And then uh, Absalom is banished and, and, and eventually becomes this civil war between his son. And I think we're going to get into that in the weeks to come, so I won't get into that. But the rest of David's life is branded by civil war and unrest and family problems and sword. And I think what this, uh, there's two things that I want to reveal from this story. And the first is that our champions, even our champions and our heroes, are susceptible to sin. And I am susceptible to sin. And you are too. And so what do we do with that sin that we've borne? What do I do with the sin that is on me? And the, 
beautiful side of this is David's response to his evil in confession and repentance before the Lord. And we're going to address that next week in the Psalms that uh, David wrote in this moment. But I want to read one um, one Psalm, and this is in th- Psalm 32. And this is what I think establishes David um, a difference of David is oftentimes when we sin, the response is to justify or to excuse or to uh, you know blame, put the blame somewhere else. And David's understanding of his sin is that I have to own what I've done before the Lord. And he says in Psalm uh, 32, says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away though my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. There is a space for us to, uh, to see that there is forgiveness when we repent, and when we own up to our sin. And so I, I hope that this uh, episode of David both reminds us that how broken even our champions are, how broken even I am. But I hope that we don't walk away from this heavy-hearted. I hope that we can also look at what God is doing even in the midst of the depths of our sin and brokenness. Because even in the darkest place of this episode, God is still at work. God had told David that he was going to establish his family, that he was going to establish his kingdom, and that from him in his line, there was going to be a, a line of kings forever. In verse 16 of chapter 7, when God is speaking this word to David, he says, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Because here's the thing. In the midst of all this dark day, in the midst of all that's going on, in the midst of the sadness of what we see, in the midst of David's sin and the brokenness of this life, God is still at work. And God is still at work in my sin and in yours. Because even in this moment where David had done such an evil thing, God is moving pieces together because Bathsheba and David, even though their first son is killed, as a consequence of their sin, they have four other children, four other sons, and one of those sons is named Solomon. And Solomon becomes the next king of Israel. And through Solomon's line, the kings of Jerusalem, the kings of Judah, will continue following after the Lord. And through that line, these kings will pass on from uh, son to son to son, a royal priesthood that will move down from generations to generations, even in the exile, to a man named Joseph 
and his wife named Mary. And unto them a son was born. And his name is Jesus. And Isaiah 9 verse 6 says this, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Because even in the midst of our hopelessness of sin, that there is something in us that is broken, that we need God to intervene. There is hope. Because God, through David and through Bathsheba and through this line, is going to provide a payment for sin in himself, in Jesus and Jesus, through the line of David, is going to take on himself the sins of the world. My sin, and your sin, and David's sin. Sin has to be paid for. And that's why animals were always sacrificed to pay for the sin, to cover over the sin. Blood had to be shed for the covering of sin. And Jesus would offer his life. Jesus, from the line of David, would offer his life down as a sacrifice to pay for your sin and my sin. And that doesn't mean that we don't face the consequences of our sin because David faced the consequences of what happened. His family was, was broken after this. His kingdom was broken after this. His, uh, his son paid the penalty of death for this. There is forgiveness for us. And there is restoration for us through Jesus Christ, the, through the line of David. And so even though we are helpless in our situation, we are not hopeless. And I hope what that inspires to you is not this hopeless sense of our sin and, and that even our champions are, are, are steeped in sin. And so what hope is there? What what? Why should I keep fighting? Why should I keep going? What, what hope is there for me? The hope that in Christ, that in repentance, that in acknowledging my sin and in acknowledging the brokenness of my spirit, that I can step before God and in repentance and that God has provided reconciliation for me in my life. And I hope that that does not inspire in us arrogance, but a humble attitude of acknowledging that I am forgiven and that I walk in right standing with God because of Jesus and what he's done for me. And so as I repent and as I allow Jesus' forgiveness to wash over me, I am cleansed. And that is the hope that we have. When we look at David, it's easy to uh, it's easy to lose that hope. It's easy to just see the darkness of what is going on in our humanity. But I hope, and next week we're going to sit in this of the freedom that we have in repentance, in owning up to our sin, and owning up to what we've done, and we're going to look at David's response 
to his sin and how David cries out before the Lord, his response to the Lord in owning his sin and his brokenness. And my hope is that we could also walk in that realness of being open about where we're at and that we could view each other not as perfect and not as having to let me dress myself and let me, you know, when I was, Larry and I were kind of joking around about this this morning, when I would go to church as a kid, my dad would force us to have to like dress super nicely and we had to wear our Sunday best, right? And it was this, like you have to present yourself like as best you can before the Lord. And I think that that has also carried over, not only in our physical appearance, but also in our spiritual appearance, that we have this, I have to uh, kind of put on my best face and show that I am, that I have it all together. And I think the beauty of seeing David's story is that we can be honest and open and raw and real before the Lord because he sees into the depths of our sin and he looks into the darkest places of our life and the darkest moments of our life. And just like he took this broken relationship, this broken and sinful relationship of David and Bathsheba that was born in sin and he can turn it into something beautiful and that through that he can bring our hope of Jesus. That God would look at the brokenness of our situation in our life and in the worst place that I could be and say, I love you. I choose you. I am accepting you because of Jesus and what Jesus has done for you. And that we can then walk in that forgiveness. And that Jesus can redeem that brokenness of our life so that we can have a right relationship with him. But how we respond in repentance is the key of what we're going to look at next week. Let me pray for us.